Um, welcome to uh, the Power of Poetry, which is for the LSE 6th Annual Space for Thought Literary Festival. The festival lasts until tomorrow, the 1st of March, and the theme for this year is Reflections. Uh, so my name is Diana Yu. I'm the president of the LSE SE Literature Society, and this event is um, being done in collaboration with the LSE Students Un Union and LSE Events. And uh, if you could please join me in welcoming our brilliant speakers, uh, Bridget Minamore and Shemaine Suleiman. With and if I could please ask you to turn your mobile phones to silent. And if you are interested in tweeting about this event, the suggested hashtag is LSE Literary Festival. Um, so, without further ado, if, um, yes, if you guys want to take it away. Hi. Um, can you hear me like this, or do I need to kind of... Is that is this okay? Okay. <laughs> um, I was I was hoping, and if not, at least just lie and play this to me. It's fine. Um, thank you very much for being here. It's really nice to be here. Um, I'm actually I'm at UCL, so I don't often venture to the slightly nicer halls of the LSE, slightly newer halls of the LSE often, but it's it is nice to be here and to speak. Um, so I think I might just sort of get get into it. Uh, I get we were you know the power of poetry and what poetry can be, and I mean I. I Brief introduction, I started writing almost when I left school, I was about 17 years old. I'd never kind of um, been interested in poetry at all, all the way through school. I remember meeting an English teacher of mine, an old English teacher of mine a few year, a couple of years ago. She was like, you write poems? Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's and I just, it was never something that I was interested in. And then I kind of, through meeting um, people like Sharon and through hearing more poetry and getting involved with other people and writing my own, I kind of realised exactly what poetry could be for me and um, what it could what it could mean um, so I think I might probably I might start with a poem but I almost never do well I haven't done it in a long time but it's one of the first things I wrote I wrote it when I was kind of a, a really angry 17 I'm still kind of angry um, an angry 17 year old and I uh, really was interested in politics but I didn't really know what to say about politics and I was trying to write and I couldn't write about politics at all and so I thought I'd write about something I know better which is food um, and so this is called Hagendars in Palestine I've always had pretty strong opinions I always like to think I'm always right if you ask me what I believe in I'll say everything from ice cream to human rights I believe in Hagendars and Palestinian flags in fairy tales that finish rich but started off in rags I think we shouldn't read the magazines that tell us we're too fat and I hope to God that human beings are really not that bad. I believe that seeing sense is never simply seen. I know that playing hard to get is cool but always act too keen. I know I think too much and talk too much and always speak too fast but I'm grateful because my thoughts and words stop me falling apart. I believe in giving blood. I know I'm always late. I know that racism is still alive no matter what your race. I know that Africa's a continent and not a single place as every single unique story cannot share a single face because I've always had pretty strong opinions. I always like to think I'm always right. If you ask me what I believe in, I'll say again, I'll say ice cream and human rights. Because I believe in haagen and Palestinian flags, in ice cream that's accessible to those who want some rags. I think we shouldn't read the magazines that tell us things aren't quite that bad when bombs still blast away and checkpoints cause delay and living life from day to day gets worse for those who cannot say exactly how they live. I believe we always have a lot more we can give. See, I believe in ice cream and I believe in life. haagen especially, I'll try to explain why, because I believe that both of them are kind of intertwined. 
I believe that ice cream is a sort of human right. I feel that everyone is entitled to ice cream. And she can seem that right as often as possible on a semi-regular basis if you want to, that is. I'm assuming you like it because I do and you might not and that's cool because honestly it doesn't re- it's nothing really to do with me as long as something doesn't affect me or anyone else directly I like to leave people be and I say that but at the same time I like to say my piece I speak out if things annoy me and I have to say I get irritated easily and I argue a lot I write on things like Facebook and Twitter a lot I still do it probably never helps but it's normally about the lack of ice cream in the world that really likes to piss me off because some people haven't got enough and others have simply got too much and some have it every day for lunch and some get a whole lot of it at once a few like to steal some and run or some just choose to stop others getting some and so most most people in the world are not with none and not eating any ice cream is never any fun we all know we should get some but the decision's already done and when we're young and never had any hagen dolls we, we think that's the way things are always done we don't know things are supposed to be any different the battle's never been won because the battle's never been fought and while we, the law says we're all entitled to hagen dolls we know it isn't given to us all not my house or my town and people around me but everybody it's that easy but in the grand scheme of things ice cream distribution is decided by a hierarchy one, two or a select few decides for many and by now I'm sure it's obvious I'm not just talking about ice cream I like to use metaphor, so that's what it's there for, I guess. <laughs> the option to compare something to something else when what you're trying to say won't come out right. Like this. A girl who doesn't necessarily write about politics compares food to human rights, and I don't write for causes. I don't write to sit on high horses, and I don't write to prove points. I write what I write, and I wrote this, because I believe in hagen Dars and Palestinian flags. In 17-year-old telling tales that makes it super facts. In fairy tales that might come true for those who wants for rags. Most of all, in Hagendars and Palestinian flags. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, that was that was that was where it all started. It's funny. I kind of can't really do that poem anymore because it's like a girl who doesn't talk about politics, and then now it's everything. So um, yeah, I mean that poem was kind of the poem that. Um, I did all the time and, it, and it, like one or two things and I, and I and people kind of knew me for that poem um, and it was it was a nice one to have it was it it, it, it kind of represents a, a time in my life when I just really couldn't speak a lot and I really didn't know how to say things and just kind of writing this whole poem and then being like well I've just done this that has it worked I don't know um, was was it's it's kind of nice going back to that time I think right and and yeah, and I and I assume this is this is how I'm gonna smoothly pass it on oh, I see. this is like that must have been the first poem you heard from me that it was it, it must have been right yeah, yeah. yeah do you want to slam with that I think did I oh. I think did you <laughs> Which one? <You> <laughs> no, it's definitely, it definitely was. It was, if not the first, it was certainly yeah. one of one of the first. Have you? This is this. This is the ball of my. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I feel like I'm on bad daytime TV and uh, or like Jeremy Kyle or something. So you are the no. Um. It's okay. I thought she was going to say a bad date, which is even worse. Um, I'll do. I, I guess. Date. I guess before we kind of carry on into the, the dynamics of how we do it, I'll do. I'll do. I'll do two myself. A disclaimer: I swear a lot, and I swear a lot in my pieces. So just so you know. Um, I, I think with, for me and, and, the, and the way that I write my politics, I have two kinds of politics, and there's, there's one where I'm very certain of the answer, and those tend to, to, to kind of define themselves in opinion pieces. Um, and then there, there are the 
the other half of my politics where I don't where I know that it's political and I know that I have an opinion on it but I don't quite know what it is and I know that it's something crap that I that that I want to to explore but I don't know how and I think that 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 side of it tends to take a more kind of creative route um I'm going to read a, a, a poem and then a short story that's about the same thing I used to live in Poplar and West Ferry. I don't know if anyone's familiar with it. Kind of top of the Isle of Dogs, yeah, near Canary Wharf. And it was um, a really strange place to live. It was a, a very kind of working-class neighbourhood, very uh, Bangladeshi, beautiful kind of... Uh, my, my, my parents are immigrants, um, so I've always kind of... I've always felt more at home, perhaps, more comfortable um, in, in surroundings that don't, don't feel, I say it, too kind of too too white. Um, I've always felt much safer in those surroundings. It was very beautiful. It was very homely, but it was also very poor. Um, but literally across the other side of this this park, Bartlett Park, um, was Canary Wharf. It was you know just kind of at the, at the foothills of it, um, and it was it was distressing to see that much money versus that much poverty and that much whiteness versus that much beautiful di- London diversity. And there was this estate, this massive estate called Cottle Park, which they've, they've torn down, sadly, to turn into a car park, unsurprisingly. Um, and across it was written someone who'd graffitied and massive spray paint, literally facing Canary Wharf, capitalism is for cunts. Mm-hmm. And these two things just used to have this standoff <laughs> with each other the entire time. And I lived kind of somewhere in the middle of it, over this park, and, and um, there was this... this um, beautiful teenage girl and, and her friends underneath my window one day, Muslim girl in a hijab being harassed by these boys. And this is essentially, this is essentially about that. Um, I'll give you the poem version per- first. It's called Pancakes in Bartlett Park. She pulled flour from her satchel. Fuck you. <coughs> she had pulled flour from her satchel and he, pointing at Pyramid, prayed for forgiveness. Looming beneath 3,960 windows, lights on, they applauded. Fuck you. And rubbing the eggs, the flour into his hair, his abuse, his assault clouded by flour. Fuck you. And flour rained. Behind them, across the estate where someone had sprayed, capitalism is for cunts, so 3,960 windows would always know, eggs and flour. Fuck you, she had said. And leaning from window, I watched, tighten headscarf, I watched, drink in my hand, flour and eggs in hers. And on his knees, all it took was flour. Let me explain. There was little else I could do but smile. Eggs and flour, looming above us, middle finger to the sky, she had said it in eggs and flour. Be the woman that you want. And raising a glass, I pulled the window shut. Thank you. Um, There is also... um, That originated actually as a short story, which I'll read to you before I, I pass it just as smoothly back to back to Bridget um, it's uh, if I can find it um, it's a much longer version um, which is going into a novel that I'm working on at the moment as well, it's called Before They Knock Down Coastal Street, it has offensive language in it so I, I apologise for that in advance, it's not my language I hope you know fucking packy 
They shout from the other side of the long stretch of green, knee rises surrounding canal, pushing its nose through from other side of street, fucking packies. And the girls ignore. Dark blue straight trousers pinching shapeless white shirts, hot sodden in school blazers as they pull their satchels to a more comfortable place between their tits. Furrow their eyebrows underneath their shy lars, their headscarves continuing down their necks and across their shoulders, the fabric scratches in time with their footsteps, which beat with the flash white light at the top of the building's pyramid. The space around them is open. Long, flat, London grass, high-rise, new builds, advertising, top-floor penthouses, regenerated, left uninhabited as the smell of sweet potatoes and rotis come from the same downstairs window swallowed every day by the alleyway. The shops are boarded and sparse. The 24 cost cutter tells you it won't sell you the bottle of gin you asked for because it's after five, dear, before putting it in a black carrier bag from the shop empties and handing it over the counter. You buy tonic somewhere else now. We play the same game every day. I walk through the estate the shop is tucked into, past the chained staffy outside, over the empty fruit boxes and rubbish bags, two men stepping out of the small back door beneath a window with bars across and under the broken air conditioning that drips. They rearrange their caps, loosen their shawar, kameez and salam brother, bismillah, and still in my pyjamas and sandals I lower my head the same every day as I drag the foothills of Canary Wolf sitting as though computer generated in the 80s and dropped into eyeline. Billboards show off new apartments, penthouses, gyms and indoor pools draping lazily off boarded up shops, hanging embarrassed between the long unfurnished pub, the lights always raised too bright, the small crumpled woman holding up the doorway with her shoulders as she unlocks her mouth, her lungs two Lambert and Butler packets. Her accent is thick with Irish parents as she watches the traffic. It stops and starts driving towards, driving away from the white light beating on top of Canary Wharf. The cars stop, start, stop, stop, start. In between the light, the car, the light, stop, start, stop, start, start, stop. Her head moves with her eyes, away from the high buildings and lands on the Hawksmoor. God knew what he was doing when he let man build that one. She points the tip of her cigarette past and at the church, but he turns a blind eye to some other ones. I light cigarette off cigarette before throwing my wallet and the bottle of tonic into the black bag. The gin bruises the tonic beside it as I walk the long way. Following the tail of the Lee Canal that waits across from my flat, we have followed each other here. The road shrinks in the shadow of the long 60s estate, now a squat that stretches and covers the full length of road, concrete, bullish and cross. Long to walk. Narrow, outdoor passageways, a jaw of broken, crowded front teeth doors, montage of glass, broken piss, running, skimpy, orange cigarette and joint tips glittering from behind broken fridges, thrown onto outside stairwells, left to rot its insides. Loose shadows hang between the shit. Crack smiles, small outsiders arrive, shoulders shriveled, give money, take drugs from a black doorframe. The graffiti is what it is. Swiveled marker lines, peace symbols... Yin-yangs like a shit 90s trance club. Amongst it, God is squatting here. Two fire engines do a bad job of filling the space in front. A police car at the end. Black smoke leaks from one of the top windows. Fuck the bailiffs. And a man shouts from the floor beneath. Fuck you. Fuck you. You can't take this from us. Fuck you. The remaining are thrown from the building. Removed by bailiffs and firemen the day before their improvised home will be knocked down. Smoking, choking its roof. You can't take this, they shout. 
To do what with? To do what with? Where will we go? Where to? I pass through unnoticed and push into my flat. The schoolgirl still restlessly on the green of Bartlett Park beneath. Fucking packies. What did you say? Fucking packies. I lean from the window. Gin one hand, tonic in other. The group of boys rub their jogging bottoms between their legs. T-shirts light, jackets with sport motifs. Black hair gelled into a front peak, their skin brown. You fucking frigid bitches, they say. You want to be more like our sisters, not like some backwards fucking packy Muslim, do you get me? This is London. Look like you know. The three girls ignore them. Turn their backs to them. Their eyes on the squat. The other side now visible in a large painting of a bomber sprayed onto it, written across, capitalism is for cunts. It stares across the flat green as the lights in Canary Wharf, walking distance since dark. The boys shout at the backs of heads. Stupid bitches. Want to get some fucking independence. Want to learn how to take that shit off and stand up to yourselves. You get me? Learn your independence. Learn to get out of the fucking shadow. Stop. Start. Start, stop, start, stop. The flash white light on the pyramid flicks between his words. Out of sync, the girls turn back and face them. You piece of shit, the girls say. And the girls pull flour from their bags. Eggs, and they run. The boys stop. Throw their hands in the air as the girls lift their legs, push satchels further behind them as feet pull higher, tightening their headscarves as their faces slow, scowl, contort, raise their arms, clench their fists, fuck you, and they release. Eggs hit the boys. They throw the flower which covers the boys and the boys cower. Some run, chased by the girls. The boys trip, caught by the girls, who screaming drop eggs on them, knees into backs, rubbing flower in their... In their hair, the flash, white light of the pyramid of Canary Wolf beats. The flower spreads, start, stop, stop, start. Stop if you ever talk to us like that again. Start, stop, stop, start. The boys drop to knees, covered in white paste, hands over eyes. The girl swinging over, don't ever speak to us like that again. Don't ever tell me what you think I am. I pull the window shut. Pour gin into tonic and grin. Outside the squat is a sofa that has been dragged from it. It sits on the pavement, its back against Lee Canal, now facing the long stretch of building in front. The fire engines are moving, the bailiffs are boarding up. An old man with a white beard sits on her sofa in the street, a suitcase one side of him and a mongrel shitting by the canal. He faces his home like this and watches, says goodbye. I drink the gin and tonic. And at two minutes past midnight, every night, the lit pyramid on Canary Wharf switches off. And for a moment, the flash white light on the pyramid stops. Start, start, stops. Thank you. I think before I pass back to Bridget, what I'll say is, in, in short, sometimes... Um, Sometimes when you're writing, the, the, the characters or the people that inspire you kind of tell the story significantly better than the point that you could ever make. I don't entirely know what I, I... I don't think I would ever be able to express just how feminist and how wonderful I found those girls and just how, um, how unfair everything else around it seems. Um, and, and sometimes when you're unable to, to say that yourself, the best thing to do is to find other people who kind of tell you that story significantly better than you ever could um, and, and to share that. 
And I think that's where the power, if we're talking about kind of the power of poetry or the power of storytelling is, is that sometimes other people tell your story a lot better than you ever could. Um, I'll, I'll pass that back to Bridget. Thank you. Oh, I love that story. And I hadn't heard that poem. It's, an, it's a I new know. one. It's, so I, when yeah. you did it, I was like... That story. I know that story, but it's, yeah, like it's a new form of that. Yeah. Um, so uh, you have, as as these things always go, you make a plan, and then you kind of don't want to be like, let's talk about something else. So I'm going to kind of do a poem that do a, couple po- a poem and a story as well that uh, kind of I think lead off from that. So I'm a well, but well, I think both well, we're both Londoners and different corners. She's a far, she's far north, I'm deep south. Far south, yeah. Um, yeah, south, south London in there. No, no. Um, I was going to say south London house, but whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I grew up in a little corner of south-east London, uh, this border between Peckham, Camberwell and Dulwich, East Dulwich, that when I was growing up, we'd pretend was East Dulwich, and, because it had an East Dulwich postcode, but in the boundaries, it's set in Camberwell and Peckham, and then they changed... No, it used to be Dulwich and West Norwood, and then they changed the boundaries to make us Camberwell and Peckham... Um, in the last election, which was a, which was a sad day for us, but um, that that is now kind of uh, Vice magazine called it the next place to watch, which means it's over. Yeah, my my heart breaks every time. <laughs> I mean to move the hell my out. My parents estate <laughs> find somewhere else yeah, to live. Where my parents live, the flat that they the flat I grew up in, which um, they got an extra bedroom because there have been six people killed in the last month in that building. When I was when I was two, they got that house. They got a three bedroom house with three of us because they could not get rid of these buildings fast enough. They now have no neighbours on their row because we're in the catchment area for the two best private schools in South London. Oh, wow. And so they're being bought up and left empty. And it breaks my heart every time I go and visit them. And I love that. I love my corner of South London so much. And it, it's painful. And, and, and it's just really torn. You're really torn. Because a big part of you has to reluctantly admit that, you know, it is nice to get an almond milk chai latte um, in, in a place that you used to be that you know was once scary to walk home at night now if I go there if I go and visit my parents it's fine I'm like they, my mum used to always be if I was going to the shop at 6 o'clock she'd be like watch yourself and now I just don't need to do that but at the same time they're going to be priced out eventually like they'll get an offer for the house and they just won't be able to turn that down um, and it, it, it's painful and, and the area is losing a big part of its soul the Kamasi market in Peckham now has you know Bar Story and a couple of other, a couple of other uh, trendy hairdressers and stuff. But you know, you, you you have what you do. So the first poem, I guess, is, is about that. This is a a piece I had to write about South London. It had to be about Deptford, which again is in my little in my bubble. And um, I'm not the best at titles. This is called "They Told Me to Write About Deptford," uh, which is true. It's probably it's one of my newest ones, actually. Anyway. We hold pride in our homes in the base of our throats, like the last gasp bastion of breath your niece made before each and every feeding. It's a greedy way of living only babies understand. You are greedy, so you left. You are elsewhere now, pretending that new home is your home. That eastern corner of the city claims you now. They say, you love it there, they say, and you say, kind of, yes, but no, you're wrong. I love it there, but it's not home, and anger suddenly becomes irrationally easy for you to hold. You are protective of this place. So you fight back with facts like the canals in East London aren't even all that. And it's not rough here, it's eclectic. And no one even likes the underground. And I prefer the smell of weed and not shisha in the streets. And in Deptford there are four night buses from central London, so the one night bus to Hackney Wick where I live now just isn't cutting it. Plus, the eight drops me off on the wrong side of the stadium anyway. 
You are protective of this place. Southeast London is your awkward cousin, the men you love, Ghanaian food, Chelsea Football Club and Beyonce. Someone or something only you can say bad things about. And you are here now. Showing others market stalls with clip-on earrings because home apparently never changes and never ages and always leaves imprints behind. You show them the door to the shell at your old hairdresser's house you hid behind because she told the tax man she was unemployed. You show them the empty space left by the man with the pincers for fingers who always put extra onions on your burgers before he died. You show them the remnants of the cafe round the corner with a train for a seating area that they, they are trying to take away. The station that has never really felt like a station because it still doesn't have proper barriers. Your dad's old cab office. The place that's the base of the Save Lewisham Hospital campaign. The pub that has the same football supporters every Sunday in the season so you dare not mention Arsenal here. The plantain that is always six for a pound, not five, because if Abdul tried to raise the price, Marsha and Effia and Roland would tell him he was trying to end their lives. And the university you nearly went to but avoided because everyone told you to spread your wings and fly a bit further from home. You tell them to be wary of the wagwans in the street, because here, wagwan does not mean what's going on, it means when and where are we going to meet, baby girl. You tell them the way your mother speaks differently here, as if she can tell the darker faces from closer lands will still understand her better than you can. You tell them of rumours of so solid proof sightings that stretch from Newcastle to Peckham in the early 2000s that you definitely, definitely did not get text alerts for. But you decline to remind them of the bridge that visitors always describe as having water running under it because they never see this part of the city clearly. You are protective of this place. This awkward blue Ghanaian Beyonce on the wrong side of the river. You are here now, but you are greedy, so you left. And every time you come back, you are reminded of the wet, running water under the bridge that doesn't exist. And the reasons your dad left joined that cab office. And the pool talk forehead that would follow a too tight braiding trip to Jesse's house. And the theatre and Deptford you didn't know existed until you were old enough to miss it. And the jollof rice and chicken wings you always get from a Nigerian man at the base of the market that is never as nice as it first seems. <laughs> but you're greedy. And so you always keep on eating it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that piece. It, I I never was able to write about London. I guess it's that whole thing. You can uh, Zadie Smith has got a really great a great uh, piece on it. I think for the New Yorker about writing about home and and essentially um, that I like to think uh, she basically says you need to leave home to love it. And I and there's a poet who Andrew Andrew Jameson has got. He's a great poet, and he's got this beautiful poem about the afternoon and he says um, we love you because you leave us and I always think that we can only really accept how much we well not always that's that's too depressing even for me um, just accepting how much we love things once we go and so I moved I finally I forced myself out of the clutches of South London <laughs> North London I could not handle managed a year barely East London it's better. It's 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 better. I I, I like sympathise. I, I I like I go I go through like Dawson and I and I see and and I see Peckham in ten years, which is sad, but I, I get it. I think, and I guess I'm gentrifying now too. So you know, <laughs> swings and roundabouts. Um, and so yeah, it, it was. It's always been really hard for me to write about home. And once I left, I suddenly started writing about London all the time. So I'll read you just a second. This kind of story, kind of poem thing, that's a little bit longer about. East Dulwich, it still hasn't got a title if anyone has any ideas and um, just out of curiosity, does anyone know what the area I'm talking about in South East London between Peckham and Campbell and, oh wow, this is good so I, I grew up on Dockenhill Hill, if you know it 
Yeah, okay, this is good. So you, you have like scope. So this is all about Lordship Lane if you if you so like three of you are like yeah, the rest of you are like <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> That's nice. Okay, anyway. It started with Cafe Nero. <laughs> that was the first posh shop to appear on a street that had never been high in the right sense. When I was young, I'd wade through suspicious smelling smoke creeping from the doorways on the corners by the outside of betting shops. Three to six old men next to two to four younger guys, they'd all have pipes or rollies or anything in between, with smoke suspiciously rising all around them. I'd sniff the air and think I'd never quite understand the appeal of weed. The older men would tip their hats in a way that only old Caribbean men can, and the younger ones would look at me for a moment too long, knowing that in another time, another place, or more specifically in four years when my face had not looked quite so illegal, I'd be a girl they'd catcall on sunny afternoons. Then came the sea cow. When the sign went up, we all said we didn't eat, want to eat fish and chips in a place that was named after an ugly-sounding animal we were pretty sure didn't exist. <laughs> when it opened, though, we all went to see it. Proper tables and knives and forks and plates for expensive cod and handmade chips and chicken we were promised was free-range. My dad burst out laughing when I told him. He told the man behind the counter that where he came from, you never had to specify how far your chickens could walk. <laughs> and regardless you paid more and you had a guarantee they were kept in nice cages rather than left free to roam the Ghanaian streets unlike here in this country where it seemed to be the other way around he didn't get it he said and when I, when I listened to him I didn't quite understand it either Sainsbury's expanded next it was the only supermarket near the flats when I was growing up and so every Saturday was a way for my mum to catch up with all her friends in the one day lull between the weekday school run and church on Sundays. She'd call her friends every evening too but we wouldn't question it as what Ghanaian women do. We'd all shop in Sainsbury's. All my friends. But only the things our parents couldn't get from the Kamasi market off Peckham High Street. We had two lists. Plantain, Peckham, Cheerios, Sainsbury's. Fresh fish, Peckham, dried fish, Peckham, milk, Sainsbury's, meat, the halal butchers in Mananhead because mum reckoned if you had to pack about with religious ceremony, you'd think keep your utensils cleaner. And she swore that in Ghana, her Muslim cousins were the only ones in her family to never get food poisoning. Sliced bread, Sainsbury's, but fresh bread, Peckham and eggs, Sainsbury's if you wanted six, Peckham if you wanted 30. <laughs> Sainsbury's was a staple. But one day it went under construction and emerged a few weeks later, a little bit more expensive with a hot food counter and clothes being sold by the checkouts. Foxton's was the next thing. The last thing, but in some ways the first thing. Yeah. It replaced one of the two chicken shops that had lived two chicken shops that had lived in harmony almost side by side for years. You would ever really only go to one. The Maxim on the right did the best chips, but the hot fried chicken on the left did the best everything else, plus the cheapest drinks. And on Friday afternoons when we finished school early, we'd all troop in and take advantage of six hot wings for a pound on our fast metabolisms. Our mothers would be unimpressed. And the Foxtons looked like a nightclub. Three times the size of everything else on Lordship Lane, to this day it still has floor-to-ceiling glass windows, its open plan and full of expensive-looking fridges full of sleek glass bottles. The MacBooks are hidden under pieces of brightly coloured cloth and are surrounded by multicoloured neon lights and chairs that flash to an unheard rhythm when it starts to get dark at night. We all got very overexcited when we heard it being built. A good half decade away from being old enough for clubs, we knew that if we just bid our time, when we finally reached 18, we could go walk down Lordship Lane to go clubbing, just like all of our mates seemed to do in Croydon. It took us about a week before we realised it was an estate agent. <laughs> Rentals, lettings and sales. The nicest shop within a mile of our ex-council flat sold houses, expensive ones, that no one from round our way could afford. 
I learned what detached houses were from the sign in Foxton's windows because I'd never really seen them before. In school, I had approximately four friends that lived on more than one level. And we all, we all now reckoned that Foxton's was a tipping point. That none of them could really move in until they had one of their own to show them where to live because then we became a hotspot. Perfect for families with more than three kids and young couples who want to put down roots. Close to a variety of good private schools, East Sulwich has little traffic and good transport links. Less than 15 minutes to London Bridge too. It's something you cannot afford to miss out on. When the families moved in, the change was instantaneous. It happened almost overnight. We began to see double buggies everywhere. Mum said she hadn't seen so many pairs of twins since the last time she was in Nigeria. Me as dad, who's the manager of Iceland, who's manager of Iceland's, got talking to them and said all the mothers he got chatting to in the shop seemed to be about 39 and had moved to Dulwich around the same time that King's College Hospital up the road got some special IVF status thing. He'd raise his eyebrows, connect the dots, he'd say. And so all Brighton Community Centre got a revamp and started offering baby yoga and Pilates classes instead of group therapy, group therapy sessions for the mothers of the guys who got life sentences for trying to rob Barclays on the corner. We got organic food shops and bakeries that promised they were child-friendly, which made us wonder how family-unfriendly we were before. I mean, to our knowledge, my mum would say the shops down the road didn't have chainsaws, condoms and syringes littering the floors. And then our friends would say much. There was that one time we found a used condom in the play area in the middle of the estate at the bottom of the hill, but that doesn't count. It was the week that sex addict escaped from Maudley Hospital, true story, and people were finding condoms everywhere. And one of the Ghanaian aunties from church laughed and said she thought it was a good thing. At least he's being safe, she said. <laughs> and to this day, whenever I see the Pope on TV, I think of her and the way she said this outside the church and the way she pursed her lips. And I, and I remember that time the new priest said giving condoms to Africans was the devil's work. It's funny. After everything changed, Maudley, Health, Maudley, Men, Maudley Mental Health Hospital stopped losing patients. I don't know what that means. King's College got a revamp with a jubilee wing and a Costa coffee in the basement that no one we knew ever went to because the one a ten minute walk away in Campbell Green was literally half expensive. And the thing about hospitals is everyone has to go there. Even when the houses got larger and we all got more boxed in, both us and them shared the same A&E department. King's College Hospital has the most stabbings, murders and mental health cases in London. I remember the time I broke my foot and me and my mum saw a man walk up to the A&E front desk and demand to be admitted because he was a suicide risk. And then it turned out he was a pathological liar, according to his father. They couldn't let him go because then he started saying he was fine. I still tend to write most of my poetry in hospitals. But King's College got more funding for everything else too, plus a reality TV programme which makes me think someone has heard this poem. And after Eddie's mum was told that if she didn't live so close to King's, the new equipment that saved her life after a forced cesarean, we started to see the good in all of them coming to live near us. Pros and cons, one would say. Pros and cons. And I didn't care much either way about them and us until the library stayed open. We fought for six years to keep, stop the council getting rid of the only free babysitter for South Southwick's working parents. But post-hotspot status, they all stopped threatening Grovar Library with closure and actually gave Dulwich Library, the massive one 15 minutes away, mo- money for a proper homework help club and a really nice garden you could take books out to. The black minority ethnic section was extended and we got an LGBT bit as well. My dad was unimpressed. My mum found it funny. And I was just a bit traumatised because I accidentally read the colour purple when I was 12. (laughs) It makes me weirdly happy that I didn't understand everything that was going on in that book. But when I read it again, age 18, I couldn't quite get over the fact that I knew the horrors and the beauty of a novel already. We got a bookshop near us soon after. Review. In Peckham, Bellenden Grove, the bit that people say they live on when they say they live in Peckham, but they don't really live in Peckham. It's nice though. 
near all the hipster flats, all the Goldsmith students who want who, all the Goldsmith students. They can find one of the only places in South London where there can be no non-white people for at least 30 metres. And all the shit shops soon after. The shit shops mum was who would say full of shit and they are filled to the brim with trinkets and earrings and boxes and stopwatches and every single thing that you know looks nice but you easily could live without and for some reason rich people like to buy a lot and a few years when the Dulwich makeover brush began to think Peckham to do a few swipes and the train from Peckham right to London Bridge began to come twice as often the same thing happened there fully Desmond's barbers became a shit shop today it sells spatulas and rings that break with little effort and it's a gallery as well next door. The wall that pork pie would lean against is an art, uh, is an art, sorry, is an art gallery. I've been inside once. It's a large blank room with white walls with a metre square large fake book sticking half out of the window and a giant pencil the size of my body doing the same thing. That's it. I was with my aunt the first time she saw it and she laughed so hard she couldn't breathe because now every time she speaks to me on the phone she asks me how the modern art's doing. <laughs> is it still the same? Isn't it strange, Amma, she'd say. How's the modern art doing? Is it still the same? Isn't it strange, Amma, she'd say. Modern art in Peckham. I remember when I told your mum not to accept the flat when they were offered it. You see, they were giving out an extra bedroom as long as she said she wouldn't talk to the camera crews that kept on coming by. You never wondered about that. You were an only child. You never wondered why your parents had such a big flat. They said a man died there, not inside, but on the railings by the balcony. He took too many drugs and he jumped off, running from someone, a pimp or someone, and they said he was an artist on the news. They said it was an artist, and I remember laughing down the phone to your mum so hard at the idea of a man with money choosing to live here. Do artists have money? You like art. Do artists have money? I don't know. Isn't it strange, Amma? More than art in Peckham. Always was, still is. I guess things always change. Thank you. Thank you for being here with me. So it's a lucky. Uh, it grows every time I go and visit my parents, sadly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a little it's a little corner, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna shuffle you back to Shemen because you haven't got a nice fern and fill Adler. <laughs> if we're doing places we grew up, um, we grew up in Finchley, unfortunately, in North London. Don't know if anyone knows. Nobody. Good. <laughs> great. Great. Oh, you're doing too. Okay. All right. I'm too ashamed. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> for you. Hands up, yeah, I grew up in Finchley. We had, I might read this poem later, we had when I was growing up. There was a man. We found it funny at the time. It probably isn't that funny. I'm sure he had mental health issues or he was genuinely a terrorist. I don't know. But I grew up in, um, I don't know if you know this, Finchley in the, in the 80s and early 90s, unfortunately, was um, Margaret Thatcher's constituency. And it wasn't a wealthy neighbourhood by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but there were a lot of. Um, a kind of Irish immigrants who lived in the area, who all, and I believe them, claimed to be ex-IRA, and there was a pub called the Heiress Tavern in North Finchley High Street, and you would go in there, and there were just these pissed, wonderful men. They were all called like things like One-Legged Johnny and like Three-Eyed <laughs> Willie and stuff like that, and they'd all sit there, and they'd all, they would tell you about how much they fucking hated the English, and all, like, all these stories about where they buried guns and stuff. And it was, I mean... I think at the age of 16, 17, I've just admitted going to pubs that young, but at that age, you, you kind of... They were just such wild stories. And I hope they were true, actually, and I think they were, but there was this one man 
who um, used to walk past my school, and he always used to wear these like yellow sunglasses. This actually isn't a poem about him. We're going to get there later. So he always used to wear these yellow sunglasses and this, this anorak, and he used to walk down and he'd walk past you as you were kids and he'd bring out this, this cardboard piece of paper that he'd handwritten IRA on it and he'd show you it and then put it back into his jacket and then carry on walking. Flashy, um, it was, flashy with an IRA. He was essentially flashy with an IRA sign. Um, but that was really prominent in the area that I grew up in. There was a lot of, you'd come home and... Like, I mean, it's such a crappy suburban neighbourhood. Nothing happens in Finchley. Still nothing happens in Finchley. But you'd come home and your road would be cordoned off because there'd be a white van under a bridge that had blown up or the station used to get blown up a lot. Purely because, you know, Margaret Thatcher was an arsehole and everyone just used to bomb our area for it. Um, but this is, this is not a piece so much about, about either of those things, so sorry for sharing that. Um, this, is just, this is just a rather nice story about... Um, about where I grew up and about my neighbours and for me politics isn't just always the nasty stuff, sometimes it's the nice things as well that, that kind of politics with a small p that bring us all together um, this is a piece about my, my really lovely neighbours um, growing up in Finchley in the 80s my neighbours were the Suits. Their adult children lived mostly in America, their grandchildren older than me in age complete, completed a close family they were an old Indian couple who I called fondly Grandpa and Grandma Sood. With their children abroad and my older relatives in another country, they enjoyed me as another granddaughter. Their daily, the love very much mutual. I was in my 20s before I experienced my first English wedding. Yet in two decades, the Indian marriages and celebrations we had shared were uncountable. On birthdays and Christmas, Grandpa Sood gave gifts encyclopedias, a thesaurus, dictionaries. Once a teacher in his youth in India, he told me I must always love words. As memory faded, the same gifts, naturally, were repeated. As a result, I received multiple times the Reader's Digest big book of how to be a strong, beautiful woman. I have 12 copies. <laughs> With both grandfathers passed before I was born, Grandpa Sood was the closest I have come to having one. When I was 19, Grandpa Sood passed away. He was 98. Grandma Sood had gone a few years before. Though my parents still live in the home I grew up, the Sood's house has been demolished. There is a railway track that has stayed, running alongside the space. I do not remember the exact dishes that we ate in the tight kitchen, laminate floor that was easy to wipe clean with Grandma Sood's bracelet-dressed hands. I do not remember the names of the sweets she made, or the meals that she cooked, after school, or on weekends with my parents next door. I do not know how she prepared the food, the ingredients or length of time it took. I cannot remember which vegetables she preferred, or the spices that dominated. Cooking, I believe, is instinctive, sculpted and natural. I have never learnt to cook, or wanted to. And while sadly the best Indian meals I have ever eaten have left with the Sood's, I have 12 copies of the Reader's Digest. They are not half as delicious, but just as wonderful. Um, that was a piece that was written for... Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with a, an author called Nikesh Shukla. His first novel was um, called Coconut Unlimited, which is about him, which is about him starting a, a really bad hip-hop band in the 90s. 
and he says it isn't autobiographical but it, re- it absolutely is um, and it's hilarious and really embarrassing um, and it's worth reading but his second, his second novel is, is far more, I think it's I don't know if it's been published yet but I've been privileged enough to read the first copy of it, it's called um, Time Machine it's called The Time Machine and it's about um, it's essentially about like his, his mum's recipes before his mum passed away Delicious food that she used to cook. Is it already yeah, out? Yeah, I think it's it already out. Goes to the the like Marie Curie award uh, charity. Roy, yeah, yeah Roy Castle for lung yeah. lung cancer. So go and buy that. It's like a pound. Incredibly it's beautiful, um, and it's it's just it's just essentially him kind of sharing um, recipes and talking about loss and talking about family. Um, the, the reason why I say this is because like you know as I said before, politics isn't always bad. Like sometimes. The politics of families, the politics of diversity, the, the, the you know the, the relationships that we have with each other, um, the miscegenation, the the, the, the the cultural diversity, which kind of which forms this city, politically negatively, sadly affects us sometimes, but also politically can strengthen us. Um, so so that that's that's why I read that piece, and that's where I came to that kind of the the, the relationship between um, the the relationship that we have with food, with family, with love. And, and how that can kind of can counteract the, the, the shit politics that we're giving sometimes here and, and hopefully make things better. Um, so I'll pass that back. See, again, I can't, I can't get up and get on kind of my feminist high horse now. I'm going to read a poem about my grandma. I feel a bit soppy now. Uh, let me... Oh... Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree with that entirely. I think it's much easier sometimes to see, to see, to see politics bad at home bits. And, and to see, see what sorry? the bad bits. Yeah, to see the bad bits. Focus on the bad bits and forget the good bits. Like, um, yeah, um, this 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 is a poem I had to write about my grandmother, who is going to be ninety seven. She is awesome. Uh, she walks around. She's mother of ten. Uh, she lives in Ghana. She's been to. England once she hated it so much <laughs> although my family very unwisely took her to visit my aunt in Scotland first in yeah. December so and it's summer in Ghana in December and she turned up at Heathrow before she went up to Glasgow the next day in like her slippers and a cloth and I just remember being seven I don't know six and looking at this kind of batty woman in a piece of cloth and my mum my dad had to go to an airport place and just buy her a coat because she didn't have one and I think again like we were saying how the most feminist women we can think of are our grandmothers we've had this conversation a lot and um yeah this is yeah my my grandmother is I don't even have well not that poem it's it's, it's that I, I she she always votes she's voted in every election that Ghana has had and her rant about voting is kind of incredible and how she will do it until she dies and, and she will die at a polling station. And, um, <laughs> and I, 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 it's, it's the reason I've never quite been sold on Russell Brand um, because I just hear my grandmother kind of, I can just see her batting him away and being like, idiot. Always. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can see my grandma doing that with a lot of people, to be fair. Um, but this is, this is a piece about death, I guess. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's not happy, it's happy enough. Um, but she's old and she always talks, it seems the older you get, the more you talk about death. And so she mentions dying at least like once every hour or so um, you know get me that I might die before you get it for me <laughs> like stuff like that and I, I just not I'm, I'm British we don't, we're not very good at death and 
uh, it, it's it, I get really uncomfortable but she's just like uh, and Ghana actually has the um, there's a documentary you should watch on it's coffins we have the largest coffin industry in the world mm. they are amazing, amazing. Um, okay. people are buried in like banana coffins beer coffins <laughs> I genuinely want a pencil Mason coffin yeah as well, right? yeah. Uh, I genuinely want a pencil coffin like I've told my family this um, <laughs> and I I wrote a poem about it and it goes like this it's called swimming lessons it's like a sink I think we're in water Time is running out and as the spout becomes clearer to see, I reckon it'll become far more easy. Since I was young, I've always tried to think of good analogies for death. They're never that good. Dying. The one thing we're all guaranteed to experience, the one thing I think we'd all rather we not not see. I'm scared of it, it's silly, I know, but if dying, if death is akin to a sink, and if we are in water that's flowing too fast, then I feel I'm, I, I'm unable to swim in this large pool of water where swimming is actually quite unnecessary, because sometimes to me it seems like we're all tied to the plug hole with large lead weights. It's like a sink, I think. And if it's... And we just want to drown easy. We're all afraid of a struggle. My grandmother is 96. She's in a lot of pain, but she is strong and she is loud and her failing eyes are the only things brave enough to refuse to listen to her instructions. Mm -hmm. But generally, she's in good health, good for 96. At her age, a disclaimer is almost unnecessary. She can't swim. Babies born in Africa at the height of the First World War tended to have other childhood priorities. My grandmother is 96. She's from Ghana, a country famous for its coffins. It's elaborate coffins in the shape of your profession or favourite thing, a country known for its boxes to bury people in funerals last days in Ghana. We keep bodies for months sometimes, on ice, simply so we have enough time to plan for funerals. The rules surrounding the colour of cloth you wear to attend are complicated and ever-changing. We throw parties to celebrate life. And so death, the death of an old person, can feel akin to Christmas. When someone young dies, it's sad, but we send them off with prayers and cries I cannot help but feel are far more fitting to never seeing your loved ones again than what I've seen of British funerals. Afterwards, we mourn publicly. Along the motorways, we see billboards covered with the faces of the recently departed. Drive a bit. Yara Santua. Jesus has taken her. Gone too soon. 34 years. Drive a bit more. Kwame Ajay. Businessman. Missed. 56 years. Drive a bit more. Nana Ajawa. Leaves 32 grandchildren. Mother to all. 127 years. We like exaggeration in Africa. <laughs> My grandmother is 96. She's from Ghana, a country where dying seems to be everywhere, but people hate talking about their own deaths. Death is not spoken about despite being seen often, because it seems we like irony in Africa too. My mother trained as a nurse and once went to four funerals in one week yet cannot talk to me about organ donation. My grandmother is 96. We cannot really speak. Her English is limited to the words she learnt from my now deceased alcoholic Scottish uncle Colin. My mother can swear well in English. My tree ebbs and flows but tends to plateau around how I use and different words for different foods. We spend a lot of time in silence. This is rare for us both, but I imagine she enjoys it as much as I do. My grandmother is 96. I know she is fiercely independent, sees she is special, and hear of how she breaks down convention by speaking about death, her own death, to everyone she meets despite the culture around her. She likes to make people squirm. My 96-year-old grandma edges closer every day. I know she does not want to suffer, but my mother cannot accept this, and so I like to think I am her confidant. In broken English... And simple tree, she tells me, 
in a weird mixture of hand gestures to the day she stops wearing to put her out of her fucking misery. She tells me to sit up straight because if I'm, if I'm not careful, it'll be my bad posture that kills her. She tells me that the day she can no longer see, when the distance between her house and the village is too far, when her memory has got to a point she cannot name all her grandchildren except Kwame because he's an idiot, when she forgets where my grandfather is buried, if she ever starts to crawl or fall or simply walk, then it's time to let her go when I should leave her in her home alone and let nature take its course. It's like a sink, I'd like to think. We're in water. Time is running out as the spout becomes clearer to see. I reckon it becomes far more easy. My grandmother has never been swimming. She still swims far better than me. Thank you. Um, no, it's very, very weird. Uh, we've done it enough, I think. Uh, Shaman? I, I, I haven't got a... I haven't got a Okay, I'll do a roundy feminist one then. Um, yay, yay, progression. We both wrote a blog called Pojazzy. Um, if you'd like to see us bitching about what it's like to be a woman, then please please come and read some of our stuff. Um, in fact, I have a piece coming out in The Independent next week where I'll be bitching about what it is to be a woman, if, you, if you're interested. Um, so, yeah, this is the... I wrote this ages ago, which ended up kind of being used by the No More Page 3 campaign. I don't know how many of you support it. Um, it's, it's, it kind of... It, it sort of started off being about something else and then ended up being about that. Um, kind of, but, but not entirely, but mostly. Um, it's called When I Grow Up. When I grow up, I want to see breasts. Round, long, tanned, bare, or dressed, feeding, surviving as headrests and protests. I want them to come out when they choose to. Show off when they want to. Flirt with you and like the way you touch them too. But when I grow up, I don't want breasts to be news. To change when we choose to show you or have them be seen somewhere between economics and reviews for TV. When I grow up, I don't want privacy to be sold to news companies like everybody's body is our right to see. When I grow up, I don't want to talk about singers' weight or leaked sex videotapes because she's done better than you. I don't want to see her in Heat magazine, aggressive red circles, mocking sweat glands or tired feet. When I grow up, I reserve the right to tell you that if you're not a feminist, then you're a dick. <laughs> that I am sick of being told I'm too sensitive when I confront you for being sexist. When I grow up, I do not want to be considered less of for enjoying sex as a single woman. When I grow up, I do not want to be the scarlet woman in your affair. It's your dick and your relationship, so take care of it and don't make me the scapegoat when you don't know where you put either. When I grow up, I want you to think more of me for crying. When I grow up, I want my age to catch up with my grey hairs. When I grow up, I do not want to cut my hair short because I have hit the menopause and feel like the third sex. There was nothing sexy about periods anyway. When I grow up, I want to get up and be the first person in the room to dance without waiting for someone else to join. When I grow up, I want to ride a motorcycle I am too old and too ugly and too fat to justify riding on but look amazing on it all the same. When I grow up, I want breasts to stay undressed when they want to be, to flirt, be touched, stick out, droop and feed. I want them to come out when they choose to, show off when they want to, in front of you, in photo shoots and videos she sends to you. When I grow up, I don't want breasts to be news, to change when we choose to, show you or see when, hi, I'm double D and I want world peace on page three, makes tits tea time property, replace privacy with princesses sunbathing by sea, or MPs, wives in bikinis, or TV celebrities in bed on their knees, because breasts in papers every day 
8.45 a.m. on train, get your kid to open it to page between cereal bars and oatmeal cakes and what we're told is our right to know each day. Jess says breasts are fair game. They're not. When I grow up, I want breasts to stay undressed, to show off and look hot and stick out and droop and drop and feed and be touched and squeezed and sit in pictures that you choose to buy to see in photos that she sent you to keep in person that she loved you to see in pictures that you choose to buy to see, choose to buy to see in photos that she sent you to keep in person that she loved you to see, but because she wanted it. Not because we felt the right to see in between pages it has no place to be. When I grow up, I want to crack and cry and laugh and love and break and get my tits out. Not without the choice of being a woman, but because I am one. Thank you. I'm back to To me, God, it's like if Women's Hour was cut up. I know, right? (laughs) Just like hack with a chainsaw. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Um, Well, so I guess this, maybe I'll I'll read this poem actually. Um, So I guess the thing about me is I am late a lot. And. For everything, really. And I guess this poem is a bit of a metaphor because so the No More Poetry campaign had this thing like poem call out, which men did a poem and it was all over and they promoted it. And 11 months later, I finally managed to write stuff about my feelings. And at, at this point, I had, I had got, I, I have about seven poems that casually mention page three and how much I hate it. For some reason, just when I was a teenager, it really grated on me massively in a way that most things don't. And despite and growing kind of into feminism, growing into equality and, and, and thinking about it, that was just the thing that kept on staying as this constant. And the name of page three came home. Like, I, I really hate the, the idea that we should focus on bigger things. But at the same, and, but at the same time, I these things aren't, can never be perfect really and, uh, and the campaign over time I've began to see not necessarily flaws but things I wouldn't necessarily agree with and I so I haven't really like sent this to them but um, I've written this poem and it was not necessarily a response to them but a response to a many, the many internet trolls I get anytime I mention sexism um, and it's called Jealous I'm oversensitive an oversensitive feminist with too much time on her hands. An oversensitive lesbian feminist with too much time on her hands who hates men, sex, and people generally enjoying themselves. I've got long armpit hair, don't wear bras, and clomp around and unflattering t shirts on Doc Martin smelling faintly of body odour, and I hate brushing my hair. I'm ugly. I'm also too politically correct and can't see that glamour modelling is a bit of harmless fun and anyway, everything is so easily accessible nowadays, there's no point complaining about it, and I'm jealous. I hate things like page three because I'm jealous. I'm not young and white and blonde and tight and slim and hot like all of those glamour models, so I have to be jealous of them. Of their opinions on the corner of the page that say how unhappy they are about tuition fees or VAT rises. You see, when I express my opinion, people aren't also looking at my chest, at least not most of the time, I hope, and I am jealous of that. When I express my opinion, people know it's what I think and do not take the piss because there is no way a girl on newspaper with her tits out could ever be clever and I am jealous that this is the case. I wish I was more like those girls, those beautiful girls, because I am jealous of the fact that every day they are looked at across the country with eyes that are mostly appreciative. I am jealous that every man looks at them and wants to fuck them. I just need a good fucking and then I know my place. I am jealous. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. I'm not jealous. I'm angry. 
I'm angry. I am angry, I am angry because all of those things I said at the beginning, that should be okay, that shouldn't denate my feminist opinion. I am angry because a half-naked photograph is the largest picture of a woman in a newspaper. And it doesn't matter how many female Olympic running stars or actresses or scientists that somehow make their way to the front page or the fourth page or the fifth page or the third, there will always be a woman whose chest speaks louder than my mouth ever could. I am angry that a lot of people say they hate people like me. People will hate page three. And no one seems to listen to me when I say I don't actually mind nudity. It's natural. I don't really give a shit about topless photos in specific magazines. Magazines in a higher shelf made for the purpose of, sh- made for the purpose of showing sexy photos. As long as no one's being exploited, then what you do really is up to you. I just hate the fact you can see a girl's rack on the third page of the widest red newspaper in the country and what it says about our society and how we think it's cool to see a semi-naked woman you don't know over breakfast not a semi-naked man i probably wouldn't be so angry if there was also a semi-naked man i mean obviously i don't really get why there's a semi-naked anyone but obviously there's just a semi-naked woman and that's really really messed up i am angry that the people whose side i'm supposed to be on the no more page three campaign keep saying they're asking us unpolitely to get rid of page three because it's a family newspaper no it's not a family newspaper it's racist it's sexist it's homophobic and run by an evil corporation who helps hide the terrible things our government is doing to the poor and the brown and the young and the female and the NHS and the unemployed and so generally it's a piece of shit and actually getting rid of page 3 won't do much if on page 4 there's another news story making fun of women for being stupid or slutty or foreign for hiding their faces or showing their faces because she wears too little clothes or too many clothes because it seems to me there is no right way to be a woman in a right wing red top tabloid newspaper and I am angry that sometimes campaigns, campaigns seem a bit pointless and I am angry that not campaigning at all seems even more pointless and I am angry that there is no no, there is no right answer here. But what I kind of feel most of all is I am angry at how a lot of the men when I was a teenager on the tube didn't give a shit about reading the song in front of me. I would be 15. And they wouldn't even flinch and sometimes they'd even wink and I am angry that those men made me feel very self-conscious about my body. And I'm angry that during the three years I worked in a bra shop, I only met four women who didn't apologise for the way their breasts looked before they undressed. That's four women out of the hundreds I saw every year, and every single young girl I saw specifically compared the way her breasts looked to theirs. And no matter how much I joked that they were being silly, I know those girls felt inadequate. And I am angry that I felt ten times worse than them when I was their age. I am angry that people tell me, always fucking seem to tell me that page three is just a part of our country, that these girls are an institution, that these topless photographs apparently make up the fabric of Great Britain and apparently we cannot find anything else that represents our nation better. And I am angry because I am black and I am British and these girls never look like me. I am angry that no matter how many petitions I sign, nothing changes. So I just get angry and I am angry. I am angry. I am really, truly, deeply angry because people, when I say why I am angry, dismiss me as jealous and oversensitive. Just another oversensitive lesbian feminist with too much fucking time on her hands. Maybe I am. But sometimes I feel that, you know what, I'm not jealous. I'm just angry. I'm angry. I am. Thank you. What are we? Are we? Are we done? Um, yeah. yeah. I think. What angry note? Whoops. Yeah. Do you have anything happy to end? I feel bad. No, I don't. No, I don't have anything happy. I'm happy <laughs> to end it there. That's so. I wouldn't. Have, I wouldn't have ended it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. Thank you so much for performing your poetry and your works. Um, so I think we're going to take about 15 minutes for questions. Um, so I've got a question to start off with. Um, so it seems like some of your works are like aimed at specific issues and you st- when you start writing you think about these issues and you're, you're responding to them 
And then other ones, uh, like the one about the incident with the girls you saw outside your window, are inspired by events. Um, so would you say that when you're writing, um, do you write with a specific issue in mind, or does it just somehow weave itself into your writing? I think if I'm writing... I think if I'm writing an argument, I think if I'm writing, like, uh, like an opinions piece or something a little bit more kind of analytical than, than I'm writing with a, with, a, with a point in mind. I mean, I guess the last poem, the feminist poem, was, was written with, a, with an argument in mind, with, with a specific set of politics in mind. But everything else, no, I think it just sort of finds itself along the way. There's a vague, maybe, route somewhere that... If it, especially if it's a creative piece, I think you kind of realise it at the end and not, not throughout the journey. Um, I, I think part of me wants to say that I, I kind of need to have a point to start, but I rarely, the points I start with are rarely the points I end with. I kind of realise what I think about most things through writing about them, deciding at the end what the point of... Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, and so... It's it, it's quite bad because it means when I'm told to write things, I really can until and then I, I, it's really funny. Like the Poe Jazzy we were talking about for months, I've been told that I need to write a new blog for it, and I was like, I can't, I can't. And then I've had five unfinished blogs on my laptop just sitting there. And then you know, two days ago, I saw something got angry, wrote a thousand words in two hours, and it was up. And it's and it's it's so kind of always worked like that for me. I'm not sure about you, but yeah, I just so. always just need a catalyst um, if, it, if think if it's a creative piece then there is then uh, uh, for me personally there isn't a catalyst but I think if it's really? see for me they're always like all my poems I can just remember like the exact moment the exact like, moment yeah. can you no it's funny yeah different strokes different yeah poems. yes absolutely thanks um, so we're going to take questions from the audience now uh, yeah. yeah so yeah uh, the microphone's going to come over to you Good afternoon, ladies. Hi. Uh, perhaps following on from that, I've got quite a specific question for both of you. Um, what has become apparent is there's a slight difference between the power of poetry as a process and then the power of poetry... God, too many Ps. The power of poetry in a process and then the power of poetry in its like presentation or performance or you know the final, the final bit, how we see it and maybe the interaction... Can you maybe both speak about the difference? Oh, so like the writing versus the performance. Yeah, the writing and the thinking and the the way that you come to... Because both of you spoke a little about not quite understanding what the point... You know, what how you felt about something, but through the writing you came to understand it. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Uh, I've, got, I've got to think. Uh, maybe, I, maybe I should think of a... I guess for the writing, I write very quickly... And then I don't edit much. I kind of write in a day. I'll finish finish it and then be like, oh, come back to it two days later and it's pretty much done. So, hmm, just the... I kind of... I'm just not very conscious of... I, I just kind of write stuff. And then... So I'm just really... I'm trying to think of, like, an example. Is the question how do we know whether it's political at the end or not? No. No, it was... Sorry. It was a bit more open-ended. Is there a difference between the power that you get from that uh, in the I delivery or the, or the 
you know, the creation. Uh, I'm just going to repeat the question a bit and let me know if I've got it right. So is this about um, how the power of the work transforms when you're actually performing it as opposed to when you're first writing it? It's not so prescriptive. I just wanted to kind of okay. flesh out the, the difference okay. between, That's interesting. between them. Yeah, it's, I, don't I know, probably it's feel like I have less power when I read my stuff. Yeah, me too. I feel like I'm giving it out. And I mean, you could all completely disagree, and then it just falls completely flat, doesn't it? That's exactly that's exactly it. It's like I think sometimes when you're writing, no matter what what kind of style you're writing in, you're like, yeah, I'm so sure this is it. Yeah, I'm going to agree with me. It's going to make me millions. And then like, you sit down, and you start reading it, and you're like, oh no, shit. No. Yeah. Like I see the flaw in that. Yeah, or like I can see why someone would pull me up on that. And even the writing it, to the it's been written. I think there's a there's a there's a gap, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Like as you're writing it, it's if I that's question the most myself, power, I if think. I question myself too much during the process, then I don't think I'd ever come to any point at the end. Yeah. So I think I have to kind of pick a and, and kind of know that I'm like that I really mean it and that I really believe it. Mm. Otherwise, you know, I've I've abandoned so many pieces because I'm like, but maybe I mean this and maybe I'll cover this and I'll keep everyone happy and it's like and then you don't write anything. Um if you're I mean yeah, I mean, all you have to do is kind of watch feminists fall out with each other on Twitter, which is such a fucking furore at the moment. To know that if you're constantly trying to keep people happy, you'll never be able to, to answer anything. But, but yeah, I think I have more power when I'm writing it than when I'm reading it, certainly, because it's not mine anymore. It's like it's for you to decide whether, it's, whether it means anything or whether you get it. I get very scared reading that piece about the girls because the opening lines are fucking packies, and I'm like, these aren't my words. These aren't my words, but they're coming from my mouth, and I don't know if you will think these are my words. Mm. So it's, you know, it's, it's interpretation, and people get stuff wrong. People interpret these mm. things wrong. And that's why I don't have... It's I don't hard. feel power when I'm reading yeah. it. And I'm it's honest. hard, because then you wonder if once someone's interpreted something... Because I think there's always... Not always, but a lot of the time there's, like, a responsibility, really. Of course. If someone misinterprets it, it's like, why? well, are they? Like, if they're reading... If, if, a few people are like actually you're saying this then it's a bit like well maybe maybe you are even if you're not you're not meaning to of course and I find that really difficult I once got told off reading that piece um by a Muslim girl at an event my family are Muslim so I'm not appropriating I just wanted to make that very clear um who for me I found it phenomenal and and very feminist and I love the idea that it's not about it's a very rigid structure where we look at people and we go, you believe in this, you're of this faith, you're of this gender, you, you behave in one certain way. And I, I love the fact that it contradicted that. But there was a girl, and I completely have to respect her view, where she said, basically what you're saying in this is that, like, Muslims fight. And she was like, Muslims do not... She was like, the faith that I've been brought up with, we don't retaliate, we turn the other cheek, and that's my faith. And, you know, that's, that's not how I was... My, that's not my interpretation of Islam with, with my family who've taught it to me that way but I have to absolutely respect that like she's completely right in saying that and for me it was such a positive point and for her it was such an offensive one mm. um, and it's moments like that where you go oh shit I didn't want to I didn't want to fuck that up because I thought I was it's funny yeah. you're giving feedback isn't it sorry it's really important though yeah really I think important. it's I think it's important and so this is just we're just going on a chat now sorry <laughs> ask Sorry. Um, no, it's fine. Um, I think there was another question over there as well. Yeah, we, could, we could yap all day, we do, like, <laughs> regularly. Um, hi, I was wondering if you could describe a bit of the career path 
of a, a writer, how you got into writing for the Independent um, and you know, doing pieces for them and, and stuff. Um, I used to be a press officer and I quit my job and got a job in a pub um, and wrote lots of stuff on the backs of receipts which is something that I don't think anyone ever wants to. I got asked to go back to my old university, unfortunately, with Toby Young, who was doing the same tour. And, um, and everyone was like, yeah, it's wonderful. Like, you, you leave university and you, you follow your dream and your dream finds you. And I was probably the only person you go up and like, it's a bit shit and you're really poor for ages. And you get a job as a waitress and then you see what happens. Um, but honestly, I think that there's a lot of truth in that. You just keep at it. I think networking, as crass as it sounds, networking is very important. And don't network in a, don't do it in a superficial way. But making friends with people, you know, we're not just like we're we're friends. Yeah. And and I think that's that's the kind of networking that I think is important. Going to events and meeting people and going, you're brilliant. Like I love the way you write, and I love what I can learn from you, and I love the way you think. And not kind of knowing them to manipulate your own career, but just really helping each other as, like as a group a, of people. Like genuine interest of course. in what you can learn from other people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's how you do it. And you start to... We're a small community, and I think you start to... I've got this job here, and there's this opportunity here, and there's this project there. And it all starts to, to take off from that. So it is networking, but it's a sincere form of it. It's not a superficial one. It is really kind of having a bond with people that you share. Yeah the same thoughts then? I don't know. I don't know what I, you think. Literally, that's the only thing I can say because I fell into it all completely. Yeah. And just, I, I've always, I've always kind of been unsure about what I, and when I was younger, I just absolutely hated everything I wrote. I didn't think it was poetry, but I, I, I did drama. I was in, I was a theatre kid and thought I was entering a poetry slam. I thought a poetry slam would be I'd give my poems to a judge and he'd mark it and they said you have to read it out loud. I'd be like, oh. <laughs> but it all, it was really good. I came, I came third and it like essentially was one of the big changes in my life. You'll find um, a lot of people say they fall into the performing side of it yeah. more than the writing. I think the writing side is instinctive, but I think the performing mm. side is something you kind of get nudged into. into. Yeah. And um, because there isn't a budget if you don't people don't have unless you're huge, you don't people don't have publicists anymore. You're kind of your own publicist and the way that you the way that you kind of showcase your work to people is by performing it. I hate it. The reason why I write is so that I don't have to speak to people if I'm entirely honest. You know, but you kind of it's it's there's there's no other way that you will originally get your stuff out there. No. And uh, sorry, if it's okay with everyone uh, to add on to that. Um, are there any particular platforms you find more effective than others? For just getting yourself out there, a Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah. Twitter's great. It's really good for. I hate Twitter today. You see, she's she she sees red. Yeah, you see. There you go. You met her on Twitter. It's, it's, creepy. Well, Twitter's a really good way to find people who have the same thoughts, the same interests, and like the same yeah. events, and you can become friends and start talking and start sharing a lot of stuff that way, um, mm. without it seeming like stalking. I think Twitter definitely helps. Yeah. Um, but just finding events, going to like going to going to open mics, going, going to open mics, and just saying hi. Like I, I spent a year after the slam. Well, before the slam, actually, when I started writing, I was like, I need to see some poem. Googled poetry London, um, one of the oldest slams in the UK, turned up, and I went there for a year and sat at the back and watched it. And after a while, I realised there was another dude who would come every year, Paul. And that's how I know our friend Paul because eventually he was like, Hello, I've seen you here every every month for a year with the only two people who don't know anyone else. <laughs> and now he's he's a writing friend and he's a friend. And and almost when I first started, and I was so nervous. I mean. 
so nervous and so cripplingly scared of sharing my work, knowing that if I went somewhere, I'd have three or four people who I knew who would encourage me was just was the only reason I would go. And I think that's something really important. Find friends you can drag places. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of friends from home who kind of hate poetry, but they became no, no, they became the friends who would be like yeah. come would come and sit with me and be like, of course she's performing. Yeah. And I think that aspect, the social aspect, is probably most important thing for me. There are a lot of events that cover lots of different genres as well. Like there's mm-hmm. there's like Velvet Tongue, which is specifically about you know, like sex and erotica and, and you know, and then there are, there, there, there are so many different kind of genres that are covered yeah. now, which is something that maybe we didn't have when we first started, but definitely now is in abundance. Yeah. And all you just Google it, find places in London, go, talk to people, talk to the owners, yeah. say hi to them. Everyone's friendly because everyone's as nervous as each yeah, other. Yeah, unlike a lot of other creative industries, you forget poetry, despite it being, I think, the biggest hobby in the UK, you know, every year, it's like poetry day, most people in, in the UK write poetry, even if it's just like in oh. their notebooks. But it's probably—I mean, arguably, it is. It must be the least, the least well-paid, and so (laughs) most people are doing it for the love of it. And when I mean, unlike acting industries, theatre industries, music industries that I know really well, there is—we haven't got to a point where ego and money have completely ruined all. (laughs) Completely, completely, completely. (laughs) And a lot of the time. I think, well, at least when I started, I don't know. It, it, there's just a lot of people doing stuff off their own back, off their own money, who just want to hear poetry. And I think that's a real... And, and if you assume most people are like that, it is nice to just go yeah. and get involved. It's a very nice place to make friends. Brilliant, thanks. Um, so I want to take two more questions before we finish. So uh, one in the front and then uh, her. Do I need a microphone? Yeah, I think she'll walk over with the microphone and then, and then we'll take the question from the front. <laughs> So, uh, have you been published? So, can I buy uh, uh, I've your poems? Uh, I've got a poetry collection coming out in July, um, which is all about Canary Wharf. I'm afraid. I'm really sorry about that. Um, it's just about reclaiming. I collect photos of Canary Wharf. Um, send them to her. So please do find me on Twitter and, and send me loads of photos. It's about it's it's about it's a weird thing. It's about like reclam- it's reclaiming a space that I don't think belongs to us anymore that should. Um, but it's also about a landmark that that I can I feel like I can see or that most of us can see from everywhere. And it, it kind of the lights are always on and there's something quite peaceful about that. And I never really feel that lonely. Especially when you walk past people's houses and that, like, especially at Christmas, you see people's Christmas trees and you feel like you're you're safe and that there are people watching you. And even though it stands for something so disgusting and so alienating, I like that it's always there and that it's always bright. Um, <laughs> so, it's, um, <laughs> so I've got an entire poetry collection about... It's mostly just about my ex-boyfriend, if I'm entirely honest. Collection or I'm in a, a, a few anthologies. They're, they're, yeah, they're on my website, I guess. Uh, I actively I cannot imagine publishing a book of poems. I still kind of feel it's a hobby. Um, it feels a bit silly. Although I am, I am doing a collection of essays... Although I can't, I can't talk much about that. But that should be funny. Although I don't know if you'd like them, all of you, none of you. They'll be, they'll be mostly about feminism. And hip- they'll be mostly about feminism and hip hop, but all of them essentially. And that's that's that. We're both, we're, we're that we're both published on, yeah. I think we're both published in various anthologies yeah. and online stuff. Or, um, yeah, she'll do her collection. I'll, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm happy with anthologies and stuff as, as far away from all. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I used to have a little 
actually no I used to have a booklet but I haven't made them for ages I used to self-publish these little things as a it's a long story um but I guess if you really want one I can I can make one if you email me because <laughs> I make them more it was it I had to do this for the Guardian they did gave me a hundred pounds and said you had to do this challenge and like I came second I think in how much money you can make so I like got budget like card and like went to a to a print shop and begged the man to just print them for me and made these pamphlets um and made I think 600 pounds or something compared to like a well, Victoria Corrin won. She bet money online on poker and made four grand, oh. which I was a bit like, well, whatever. So if, if you do actually really want one, I can make them. I sell them for like three quid because I'm like, whatever. I'm not I'm not really good at business in any way. <laughs> but if you want one, just send me an email or something and I will, I'll do that for you. Uh, brilliant. That. And there's Thank a you. question in the front as well. Um, so your poetry is obviously intensely personal, emotional, um, and you said you perform multiple times the same poem. Um, like, w- when you perform a poem multiple times, do you feel it kind of takes away from the emotions you felt when you were first writing it, or...? Yeah, it depends on the poem. I, I, I get sick of my poems very easily if I say them, in, if I say them enough times. Um, I just I just a bit like, either I think this is rubbish, or I think it's boring, or both, and or or I just kind of feel that it's I've lost the passion with it. But you so, stop feeling the same way about it. Maybe like it's not so much that the passion gets driven out because you've said the same thing too many times. It's maybe just because you've changed your opinion on that thing. Mm, so the passion isn't there. Um, I, I think maybe that might. Happen. I change my opinions a lot, and as I write, I, like I, that first poem I read, and I kind of read it just to kind of say, you know, where, where you start. I think it's important to, to say it. But I, there are loads of lines in that. That I, that I look back and I think 17-year-old Bridget thinks very differently from the Bridget of 60s later and I just think, okay, what do I, what do, I do here? Mm. Do I... I, I, can't, I can't... And I feel editing it is wrong because those are my politics at the time mm. and this, that's what I thought of at the time and I probably didn't even think of it that much. But, so I don't edit it, but at the same time it feels kind of very disingenuous to, to read it, so I, I almost never do. Um... I think you can go through phases with things as well. You can overdo something and get sick of it and then read it and not really care and I think that does come through. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you're you're you know, you've left it for six months and you read it again and then that sparks yeah. there and then it comes back. So I think I think it, it does do. but I do think there is a lot to be said, yeah, if you read something too much yeah. like and you just start repeating it's like you've almost learned the words and it's yeah. not really coming from Once you. Once I learn the words it's usually a sign that I should stop reading <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, something else. I think so. Mm. Wonderful, thanks. So um, just before we finish, um, I wanted to ask you, um, so I know there's lots of people out there, like you said, like poetry is one of the biggest hobbies in the UK. Um, So there's lots of people out there who are writing their poetry. What advice do you have to give to people who are writing their poetry but don't have the confidence yet to go out and perform it and to show it to the world? Keep going and watching other people. Even if even if you spend like Bridget said, I think most spent all of us year. I think have that story. Yeah. You spend a year or, or, or the better part of a year going to these things and watching other people and then mm. getting drunk enough to feel confident enough to do it. But yeah, drink a lot. Post- yeah. Post- <laughs> post- <laughs> I mean, get yeah. really drunk. That that or that. <laughs> um, go with that or take take someone that you really trust as well. Or start sending. I think. Sending stuff to people is usually the first sign. Mm. Emails to find someone that over maybe a writer, someone who already writes whose opinion you yeah. value, or just a really good friend that you yeah. trust, or a friend who start. doesn't write at all. Yeah. As like my friends, just if, if they if they like something, it's a big deal, and I and I feel a lot yeah. of confidence, and they won't lie to you. And sometimes it's nice to have someone be a bit harsh. 
Yeah. I think. But we still do that now. I mean, even even now we still send stuff to each other going, I don't know about this, I don't know if I should do it. Mm. And I think it's, yeah, start, start feeding stuff out to people. Yeah. And then the more you realise that people won't come back and go, God, that's awful, never read that public. Yeah. You'll start to, you know, guess, that confidence will come. And then you'll, I guess you'll it's anything it. except that isn't keeping it to yourself. Mm. I think yeah. any, any, anything else but that is good. Mm. But writing these things and keeping them in a cupboard at home just lit, just honestly does very, very little for, even if for you got, or your work, I even think. Even if you get a Twitter account, if you're already on Twitter or Facebook, start feeding lines out maybe here and there. We used to get poems on Facebook on notes. People it's do died that out. I'm not sure why. Well, I stopped anyway. Got to. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, I remember you used to put them up and it was nice because it meant that I didn't know who read them. But if people did like them, they'd just comment. And it was, and I, I could just pretend to myself that no one had read them if no one commented on them or if, or if no one liked it or anything, and it was fine. Yeah. And just that kind of anonymous... or And because and I get really nervous with my friends sometimes, I'd go to open mics just on the other side of London that I just would yeah. definitely not know anyone. Just stop on your own if it bothers you more about being mm. with There are loads of places to go. So just do whatever you can. To do whatever you can, really, yeah. 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 There, yeah. Don't keep it to yourself, I think, is the answer. Mm. Okay, well, thank you very, very much. And if everyone could join me with a round of applause for our (laughs) wonderful.